Well, today is an important day for Westminster Church. As you know, we have decided, after long deliberation and debate, study and prayer, to move to weekly communion. There are a lot of reasons for doing this, and there are, among some, concerns about it. So this morning, we're beginning a new series on the Lord's Supper. And as we do, let me just state explicitly the assumption which underlies this series that we're about to start. It is this, that if one, if one sees the richness of the sacrament, right, if one sees the depth and beauty of that feast and the benefits of Christ conveyed there, In short, if one grasps the logic, the theologic, the theology of the supper, then one will almost inevitably desire it with greater frequency. It is, after all, a means of grace. And we desperately need grace. So we want to begin today with the text from Luke's Gospel that was just read. In, In Matthew, Mark, and Luke... There are narratives recorded on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested in which he institutes, and by that we mean he solemnly leaves for us an ordinance to keep. He institutes the Holy Supper. So of these institution narratives, as they're called, institution narratives, of these institution narratives, the one in Luke's gospel is remarkable. It is the longest, and it is the richest account. And thus, it's the most instructive for us about the nature of the table. So we'll look at this narrative in Luke, Lord willing, over the next couple of weeks. Today, we want to look at verses 14 through 18 and verses 28 through 30. So we're just going to make two points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The supper... And the significance. Of course, we're only scratching the surface of the significance, but we can say a few things. So first, then, the supper. Okay, so this is Luke 22, verse 14. At the outset, we see that the climactic importance of this meal for Jesus' life and ministry cannot be overstated. Luke indicates this by saying in verse 1 of that same chapter, Luke 22, in verse 1, right, he says, the feast drew near. In verse 7, he says, the day for the feast came. And at the opening of our text, he says, the hour had come. The time, the day, the hour, and the hour is the hour associated with Jesus' passion. That's how the hour is used in the Gospels. So Jesus reclines at table with his apostles. And he says this, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he is intensely focused on what transpires here. He literally says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. With desire, I have desired it. He is impassioned about what he's about to do. It is a momentous event. So think for a moment about the freight that this meal carries. This is how he 
summarizes and condenses his entire life, obedience, his teaching, his miracles, his passion, and his resurrection triumph. This is the distillation that he leaves of his whole life and mission. This is what he institutes for the church in his last hours with the apostles. This is what he leaves us as the means to remember him by and to commune with him until the end of the age. No other ritual, no other explicit instruction on what to do when we gather. This. This the church had even before she had the New Testament. This is the Passover, which he will transform into the remembrance of his own passion, his own suffering. So in Luke 22, in verse 16, he says this, For I tell you, I will not eat it, I will not eat it, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So immediately, get this. Right? The meal is associated with the kingdom of God. The reason the Lord's Prayer is prayed right before we go into the supper is because the Lord's Prayer is a prayer for the coming of the kingdom, and that's a meal that's associated with the kingdom. Now, Jesus did eat with his disciples after the resurrection, but those were not Passover meals. And that is not what is in view here when he speaks of a future time that he will eat in the kingdom of God. He says, I'll eat when everything's fulfilled. All things are not yet fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is speaking here, Calvin says rightly, not of post-resurrection meals. He's speaking of gathering his disciples into blessed and immortal life. Those are Calvin's words. So, The kingdom of God here in this text is future. It's future. Entirely future. It is true, of course, that the kingdom of God is here now and it is still to come. But not every reference to the kingdom is now and still to come. Some references are just about the kingdom here now. Some references are about the kingdom in the future. This reference is about the kingdom in the future. It is the kingdom in its coming, eschatological, that means having to do with the order of the end, fullness and glory. It is then that all that the Passover and all that the supper points to will be fulfilled. So in Israel, we had this pattern, right? The order went as follows. This is sort of how the history of redemption works, right? Passover, then Exodus, then wilderness, then Canaan. And in the New Covenant, Jesus is the final Passover lamb, the better sacrifice. And in this very gospel, in Luke chapter 9, his death is called an exodus. It's the greater exodus. Leads the church out of bondage to sin and death. Out into its wilderness pilgrimage in this world. As the church journeys to what Canaan pointed to, namely the new heavens and the new earth. So the pattern is broadly the same. Passover, Exodus, wilderness, new creation. The point is this. It's this whole process which fulfills the Passover sacrifice. Fills it up to its full meaning. And the end then 
The goal is complete deliverance from all enemies. Holy communion with God in a holy realm with all the saints, past and present, in immortal glory. Then everything is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, and then Jesus will eat the meal. Listen to how Luke puts this future eating back in chapter 13 of the gospel. Same gospel, chapter 13. Luke says this. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So notice, right? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the final judgment. And eating and reclining at table with the resurrected saints are parallel things. They both refer to the eschaton, to the end of the age. So here's the point. When Jesus speaks of reclining at table in the kingdom of God, he is clearly speaking of the consummation. If you look at, look at the text, if you look at verse 18, he takes a cup, he gives thanks... He asks them to divide it among themselves, and he says this. From now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is remarkably the second reference to the kingdom, and Jesus has not even gotten to the words of institution that we're familiar with yet. The kingdom, which has already come in Jesus, is spoken here as coming in the future. So I could paraphrase our Lord's words this way. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine of the kingdom of God, which has come, until it comes in fullness. Then, 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 Jesus will partake in the feast with us, with all the saints, because then the union of Christ with his bride is consummated. Further confirmation of this future kingdom is seen down in verses 28 through 30. In the passage we read, there Jesus says this. He's speaking uniquely to the apostles. He says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Okay, so he assigns the apostles a kingdom. What does this kingdom entail? The very next words are this. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. we've We've already seen now. That reclining at table for Jesus is an eschatological image. It's an image of the coming kingdom. Here he adds that the twelve will sit on thrones judging the renewed Israel of God. Whatever that means, whatever that might entail, one thing is certain. It refers to the age to come. Jesus says something virtually identical in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, he says this, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this language of the Son of Man sitting on his glorious throne, like the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne and you will judge the twelve tribes of Israel. This is also language of the end. Yes, the Son of Man is enthroned as king now. 
but he sits on his throne, meaning he assumes the role of judge in the cosmic courtroom and doles out sentences. He sits in that sense. He is in session at the end. Here's Matthew 25 on the final judgment of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Sitting is eschatological language. So when the Son of Man judges the world, the apostles will judge the Israel of God. So again, I know I am belaboring this. And I am belaboring it so that we can see the future orientation of the supper right at the outset. It's at the beginning of our text. It's at the end of our text. In fact, if you look at this passage five times, five times in instituting the supper, Jesus refers to the consummation or the end of all things. Five times. We could take the supper for five years and never refer to it. In short, in referring to the kingdom of God here, he is speaking of what the book of Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? which commences with his return. This is the first thing to get about the supper. The supper is the feast of the kingdom. But more precisely, we've now seen, it's the feast of the coming eschatological kingdom. Which brings me to the second point, the significance of all this. Of course, we're going to have a whole series to try and unpack this. But we can say a few things now. First, the supper is a sacrament. And as, you know, as a sacrament, it's a blessed gift. Grace is really communicated to us there when we come with repentance and faith. We partake of the kingdom there. Already, because we partake of the king. But it is the nature of sacraments, right? This is key to get. It's the nature of sacraments to signify their signs. They point beyond themselves. A sacrament is not the thing itself, right? It's not the thing itself. It's a foretaste of the thing. It's an appetizer. It's a pointer. It's a signpost directing us to the thing. And the thing, the reality that we've just seen, is the eschaton, the future consummation, the kingdom of God come in fullness, where all the saints resurrected in fellowship and in unity and in peace and in shalom with Jesus Hosting the meal, not through his ministers, but in his own visible, direct, embodied glory. Right? That is what the supper points to. That's what it's a sacrament of. Right? In light of that, in light of what it is, in light of its essence. The supper in the history of the church has been something of a tragedy. Now, the meal that Jesus gave us. To anticipate the coming wedding feast, to bind us into one, to seal and even create unity, has been the source of ugly, long-standing division in the church. You couldn't make this story up, though the irony of it seems to be lost on us most of the time. It has been the cause of ugly, long-standing division, even anger and hostility. It's behind church splits and new denominations. Here, of all places, here we fight. 
We fight over what the elements are and what they become and exactly how Christ is present, if he's present at all, and how the supper should be celebrated. Who should come to the supper? What age should they come to the supper? How often should we have the supper? What kind of bread should we use? What type of wine? How should it be distributed? How should we conduct ourselves? Differences over the supper scar the face of Christendom. In one sense, when you have a fractured and divided church, every celebration of the supper has a certain brokenness about it. Which is why it's important to remember, it points beyond the brokenness to the coming kingdom. But in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of this, I will tell you what an even greater tragedy is. What's even a more monstrous source of disorder and a sign of an immense lack of proportion. You may have heard me talk about order and proportion before. Order and proportion. People have all these opinions, sometimes fierce opinions, about the supper. All the stuff I mentioned and more. There's great passion involved. The sacrament this and the sacrament that. But you know what there's virtually zero passion about? What the sacrament points to. Zero. Which is not merely some tepid thing called communion with Jesus. It's eschatological communion with Jesus and all the saints, with the patriarchs and the prophets in resurrected glory in the coming kingdom of God. Not one person has ever said to me, we need to have the sacrament more because we must kindle a ferocious heavenly mindedness and a yearning for the coming kingdom of God and the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that is precisely what the supper is intended to do. Never. Zero. And if we've been taking that supper for years and we do not find ourselves groaning for that end, for the coming of the kingdom, to see the face of our beloved, we should examine just what we've been doing. To treat the supper as an end in itself, or just a dose of grace for our weekly spirituality, right, is a form of idolatry. We are spectacular at turning good things into idols. We are not to be obsessed with the sacrament. We are to be obsessed with what the sacrament points to, with what the sacrament is a sacrament of, and that is not the case. Otherwise, we are like people who are fighting, who are clinging to and fighting over and arguing about a sign that says Pittsburgh 10 miles, while Pittsburgh itself stirs very little passion for us. We're just up at the sign saying, oh, you got to move this, you got to change this sign. Right? When you painted the sign, you didn't paint the sign right. It's all about the sign. All the passion we generate is about the sacrament and not about the eschatological kingdom, of which it is a feast. And this is a grotesque disorder. That's why five times in the institution narrative in Luke's gospel, Jesus mentions the coming kingdom. After all, think about this for a second. We have a piece of bread and we have a drink of wine consecrated by our Lord's word, to be sure. right? And we commune with Jesus. 
right, who while present by the Spirit in his ascended body remains unseen, remains in heaven. And it's a wonderful thing. But it's pretty clear that that's not our destination. It's pretty clear that our faith should not be terminating there. It's pretty paltry as feasting goes. It's but the beginning. It's but the antechamber of the cathedral. How many of us, I read a, an author who wrote a little piece, a little meditative piece on the book of Revelation this week. And at the end of it, she had this sentence, which I thought was gripping. It said this, how many of us are genuinely moved in the depths of our hearts in the wild hope that our earth will be recast? That's the hope of the gospel. So, so yes, we grasp the reality here. We do. But we grasp it by faith, even there. We grasp it through a glass darkly. And the very nature of the table, this is why I belabored this so much earlier, right, is to stimulate in us a yearning for faith to give way to sight. That's why we have sacraments. To stimulate in us a yearning for faith to give way to sight. Right? None of this is to say that the supper isn't rich or that it isn't deep and delightful. It is. It is. But it is not those things in and of itself. All of its glory is borrowed glory from the future, from the kingdom to come, from the marriage supper of the Lamb, from the ascended and transfigured and coming Christ. It has, it has Christ. It has no intrinsic glory. It's all borrowed glory from the eschaton. And it is that reality, right? Face-to-face communion with that Jesus in the kingdom of God, which confers all the splendor on that meager table. The supper is grand because it signifies and it seals and it is a foretaste. It is the appetizer, not to some future earthly glory, but to the coming kingdom feast. The supper, then, this is what we mean when we say that is the feast of the kingdom of God. It must make heavenly eschatological people of us or else we are profaning it. When we come to that table, we are remembering what Jesus did for us, right? But this looking back in the supper has rightly been called the memory of the future, the memory of the future, because in the very act of remembering, we are lifted up into heaven. That's why you have the sursum corda at the beginning of the Eucharistic part of the service. We are lifted up into communion with the ascended and glorified Lord and host of the meal, This is the last part of the exhortation that John Calvin used in the 1540s for his communion in Geneva. You can find it in the 1542 Genevan Psalter. Here's how the prayer closes. He says, and now, to this end, lift up your minds and hearts on high. There's the Sursum Corda echo, right? Lift up your minds and hearts on high where Jesus Christ abides in the glory of his Father and from whence we expect his coming at our redemption. He's already seen, he's got that heavenly future emphasis here. Then he says this, dwell not upon these earthly and corruptible elements. Which Dwell not upon these earthly and corruptible elements, which we see present to our eyes and feel with our hands. 
to seek him in them as if he were enclosed in the bread or in the wine. For then our soul shall be disposed to receive food and life from his substance when they shall be thus lifted up above worldly things, even unto heaven, and enter into the kingdom of God where he dwelleth. Right? That's how Calvin prays at the, at the supper, at the table. When we come to the table, we're remembering this and we're lifted up into the coming kingdom of God, into the marriage supper of the Lamb, right? into the very day of resurrection and Sabbath rest with Jesus and all the saints. It is this which makes the supper a place of nourishment for pilgrims on their wilderness journey. And it is this which makes the supper a place of light and gladness. And it is this which makes the supper a flame to kindle the blessed hope of the church. That you might abound in hope through the proper use of this sacrament, which is itself the eschatological feast of God's kingdom. Amen. Amen.